Now we're going to turn to the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. And this morning is exciting because we are starting a new sermon series. We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. And you might not know where Nehemiah is. It's in the Old Testament. If you open up the Old Testament, chances are you'll open up to Psalms because it's incredibly large. Just back up a couple books. Job comes before Psalms. Esther comes before Job. Nehemiah right before Esther. So Psalms, back up, we get to Nehemiah. And I'm excited, one of the reasons I'm excited about talking about Nehemiah is because it gives me a chance to talk a little bit about history. So we're going to start by talking about what happened in 586 BC. Babylon comes into Judah and destroys Jerusalem, and they extradite many of the Israelites back to Babylon. But then 30 years later, the Medo-Persian Empire shows up and destroys Babylon. Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, looks around at his new territory and all of these new people, and in a brilliant political move to avoid an uprising, he looks at the Israelites and he says, y'all want to go back home? I'm cool with that if you want to go back home. And so slowly but surely, Israelites begin to leave what was Babylon to head back to Jerusalem. In 458 BC, the priest Ezra leads a really large group of Israelites back to Jerusalem, and 13 years after he departs, this happens. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakliah. Now it happened in the month of Hislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. O God, we come before you this morning thankful for this beautiful day. We thank you for an opportunity to hear from you once again in your word. I do ask that you would send your spirit to us this morning, that we might hear your faithfulness, that we might see that you were faithful in the time of Nehemiah, 
that we would see that you are faithful to us now today because you are a consistent God who does not change and faithfulness is part of your character. I pray that that would give us hope, that that would change us, that we would believe and be changed by the gospel this morning. Pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I don't know about you, but I always find the week after Easter somewhat strange. It always seems like we have this huge celebration on Easter Sunday. We rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. He has completely upended the natural order of things. He has come back to life. We celebrate the freedom and the new life that he has brought us. And then we just go back to work on Monday. Nothing really changes. This week was no different. Seems like Monday was just a normal day. But then something happened on Wednesday. I was recording the podcast that we do uh, with Matt Cabot. If you haven't listened to it, it's on our website, Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify as well. And I realized that I said something in my sermon on Sunday that I hadn't quite thought about. I said that the kingdom of God is invading and advancing right here, right now. I said that on Sunday in my sermon, and I firmly believe that that is true. And yet, it didn't feel like that was true on Monday. Things just went back to normal at best, but terrible at worst. There were still people debating about masks and COVID and reopening. Children were still separated from their families at the southern border. There was another terrible shooting. There is violence towards Asian American and Pacific Islanders still. And it wasn't just normal or terrible out there, but I myself just went back to normal life. I was more preoccupied with my own life, my own kingdom, my own rule to even think about how God's kingdom was impacting me. I responded to Nicole and the girls selfishly, frustrated when they asked me to do something I didn't really want to do. I was disengaged from reality by just staring at my phone or watching sports. I got mad when someone disrupted my day and the order of life I wanted. Really, the only exciting point, the only thing that brought me any peace or hope was, like Bob, I got vaccinated on Monday. Things just kind of went back to normal. And it led me to ask the question as I was recording this podcast, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is God really redeeming his creation or not? Is he restoring his children or not? Is God faithful? The answer is yes. But as followers of Jesus, we don't often live like that is true here, now, today. How would we even do that? How do you begin to live out of the reality that God is working his kingdom into our hearts and our lives? How does God's restoration of creation affect you? How does it change you? How does it call you to live? Well, Nehemiah actually gives us an example of how God's faithfulness impacts our lives today. For Nehemiah, the kingdom of God was not the Holy Spirit working in his heart. It wasn't the death and resurrection of Jesus because that wouldn't happen for 500 years. For Nehemiah, the kingdom of God was a place, a location. It was Judah, Jerusalem, the temple. 
that was the place that God was supposed to be, the place that God said he would dwell among his children, his holy habitation. That was the source of God's redemption and restoration. So when Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, gave permission for the Jews to return home, it it was more than just a homecoming. It was a return to reconciliation, a return to the place of redemption, a return to God himself. That's what Nehemiah was hoping in. That's what he and his family and all of his fellow Israelites living in Persia would have celebrated in. But how did it change their lives on a daily basis? What do we see from Nehemiah? Well, God's faithfulness, access to his redemption meant you have your heart broken. You recall God's promises and you ask for God's favor. Three points this morning. The first one's a little odd. I know that. Stick with me. We're going to start by saying, let your heart be broken. That's the best way to describe how Nehemiah is feeling at the beginning of his book. In verse 4, it says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept, I mourned for days, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His heart is broken. But why? Because Hanani, his brother, has painted a very bleak picture of what's happening in Jerusalem. The people there are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned by fire. It's most likely that Hanani returned with Ezra 13 years prior to this event. But as we said, Jews had been back in Jerusalem for almost 65 years. Things should have been different by now. This is not the way that God's people, the city of Jerusalem, God's kingdom should be. The disconnect between God's majesty his goodness, his redemption, and the destruction of the, sh- of the city, the shame and trouble that God's people are experiencing, that is what has broken Nehemiah's heart. The disconnect between what should be and what is. That's the same disconnect that I was talking about in my introduction, the same thing I experienced this past week. And I think that you know that disconnect. It's easy for us to sense that things are not the way they should be. We say that God is king, that he is working his redemption in our lives, yet things don't really seem to be that way. Life is still really challenging. You struggle. Your loved ones suffer. Relationships are broken. We know things are not as they should be. The question is, does it break your heart? when you recognize that the kingdom of God doesn't feel as close as God says it is. I think we recognize that disconnect, but I think our response, our reaction is a little more calloused. It reminds me of a scene from the movie Hotel Rwanda, where a camera crew that's embedded with some UN peacekeepers in 1994 capture the first atrocities of the Rwandan genocide, where 800,000 Rwandans were murdered over the course of 11 days. And in this scene, this film crew goes back to the hotel, which is run by the main character of the film, Paul. Paul sees what is happening, what this film crew has caught. And the cameraman says, Paul, I'm so sorry, you shouldn't have seen this. And Paul, watching his fellow tribesmen being murdered, says, no, we need to see this. 
We all need to see this. You need to send this back home so the world will see and they will come and they will help. And the cameraman looks at him and says, no, Paul, that won't happen. They will watch this on CNN and they will say, that is terrible. And they will go back to eating their dinner. I know that I've used that illustration before in a sermon. The reason that that quote sticks with me, that it still haunts me, is because it accurately diagnoses my response to the disconnect between the truth that God's kingdom is invading and advancing right here, right now, and what daily life feels like. It's terrible. And then I just go back to eating my dinner. I don't think that our hearts don't break over this disconnect because we're emotionless. I don't think that it's because we don't care. I think it's because we don't know how to deal with that sorrow. We don't know how to engage with the brokenheartedness, to live in the tension between what God says is happening right now and what feels like is happening right now. I think we don't like discomfort, and so we don't like to sit in it. We don't like sorrow, so we don't like to name it. We actually have become pretty good at insulating ourselves from situations that could break our hearts. But God's faithfulness to redeem, to remake, and to renew us and His creation as He's promised tells us something different. Because Jesus really raised was raised from the dead, it means that we can let our hearts break, that the disconnect between the now and the not yet of God's kingdom can be an invitation. Frederick Buechner is an author and a practical theologian, and he sees that this way, sorrow, brokenheartedness. This is what he writes about it. Whenever you find tears in your eyes, especially unexpected tears, It is well to pay the closest attention. They are not only telling you something about the secret of who you are, but more often than not, God is speaking to you through them of the mystery of where you have come from and is summoning you to where, if your soul is to be saved, you should go next. The disconnect, the sorrow, the brokenheartedness, it is a hard but a good reminder that we are not home yet. We are not home yet. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that we're not home yet? Nehemiah shows us that we should recall God's promises. Let your heart be broken and recall God's promises. In his sorrow, he mourns, he fasts, and he prays. Last year, we looked at this passage in our Prayers of Repentance series, and it is incredibly valuable for us to see that Nehemiah's response is to repent of the sins that have led to the Israelites' homelessness, being captured by Babylon, being extradited, sent away, out of their home. He says, this is my fault. I and my family's house. And one of the things we talked about is the reality that it's not possible for it to actually be his fault. He wasn't alive when Israel committed the sins that led them to be extradited. And yet, he confesses them. Why? Because he knows about God's faithfulness to those who confess, to those who repent. We see this in the way 
that Nehemiah recalls God's promises. Look at verse 8. He says, saying this back to God, praying this back to God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. He's saying, I admit, it's our fault that we are not home yet. Verse 9, but God, you also said, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah is recalling specific passages from the book of Moses, from Leviticus chapter 26, from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. He is quoting scripture, promises that God made to his people through Moses. He recalls God saying, I will bring you home and I will dwell there with you. We have to know how powerful promises are. Here's the thing. I think we do. This past week, yesterday, in fact, Nicole took our two girls to go shopping at Target. And as most shopping trips with little kids uh, can degrade really quickly, Nicole said, if we're good, if we listen and obey, at the end, we can get popcorn if they have popcorn at Target. Target used to have popcorn available. They don't, most of them anymore. She said, if no popcorn, we can get an icy. Well, the girls earned the icy and the icy machine was broken. So by the time they made it home to our house, I walked out to greet them and Margaret was in the car crying. And I said, what's wrong? She did not say, I did not get an icy. What upset her the most was that mommy didn't keep a promise, even though she couldn't control it, right? We know the power of a promise. Here's the problem. We don't think that God's promises are real for us. We don't think that they matter to us, that they're personal. Has God promised anything to you? If you are a child of God, the answer is yes. And let me tell you a few of them real quick. God promises his children that he will never leave nor forsake them. Hebrews 13, 5. That he will use everything in your life, good or bad, successes or failures, for your good, to make you more like Jesus. Romans 8, 28. If you are in Jesus, then you are his. You belong to him and nothing can take you out of his hand. John 10, 28. If you confess your sins, he is faithful. He is just. He will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. He is making all things new. Revelation 21, 5. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Philippians 1.6. That is the tip of the iceberg. God's promises to his children go hand in hand with the reality that God is working all things in, to renew them, to redeem his people, to reconcile all of creation to himself. Those promises tell us that God is reshaping our sin-twisted lives. He's remaking our home, and the promises tell us he's doing it in us. How can these be true? They don't feel true. How do we know that God can keep his promises? The resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. So all of God's promises in Jesus are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20. When you are brokenhearted by the disconnect between what's good and what is now, 
when you are sorrowful that we are not home yet, recall these promises. Remember that they are guaranteed because Jesus has risen from the dead. And then, as Nehemiah tells us, ask for God's favor and act. Ask for God's favor. My final point, we can almost hear Nehemiah's courage building in his prayer. His tone shifts. He starts out brokenhearted. And as he recalls God's promises to gather the people together, to dwell with them, he gains some courage and he begins to speak to God very boldly. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. God to Nehemiah is now powerful. He is strong. Nehemiah begs God to be attentive, honors God by calling himself a servant, and then he gets this petition in. Verse 11, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah had a plan. He goes into this prayer aware, brokenhearted, that things are not right, but knowing full well that God has promised to restore the kingdom, to make things right, and knowing that there's something he can do. Nehemiah is going to do something to help bridge the gap between what is happening in Jerusalem and what should be happening in Jerusalem. But here's the key. He knows the only way it will work is if it's God himself who intervenes. He comes to God with a petition to be his hands and feet as he begins to build this bridge. Now, that last line, I was cupbearer to the king, we need to pay attention to that. It's not a throwaway verse. It's not as though he accidentally tied that into chapter 1 and it meant to be in chapter 2. It tells us two very important things. The first one is this. He was so burdened by God's kingdom and bolstered by God's promises that he was ready and willing to risk everything. See, being cupbearer to the king meant that he had a unique status for sure. He was there at the king's right hand. He was able to speak to the king when most people wouldn't even get to see the king. It also meant that he was disposable. If the king was unhappy with the wine that Nehemiah brought him, or somebody tried to kill the king by poisoning his wine, Nehemiah was dead, and there was somebody waiting in the wings to take his place. By saying, I was cupbearer to the king, he's saying, this is it. This is a do-or-die moment for me, and it's worth it, because I trust in God's promises, and I'm burdened by God's kingdom. Now, here's the second thing that this little throwaway line tells us. Nehemiah wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He was just a dude with a broken heart, trusting in the promises of God. It means that we don't have to have some kind of particular status or training in order to ask for God's favor. It reminds me of this old wives' tale about Martin Luther, who was preaching the gospel one day, and somebody came up to him after the service and said, I want to impact God's kingdom. I want to follow and be a faithful servant of God and do what you do. How can I do that? What should I do? And supposedly, Luther asked, well, what is your profession currently? And the man said, I'm a cobbler, a shoemaker. Luther responded, make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Now, whether he ever said that or not, the, the point is, in order to be faithful, you don't have to go into ministry. 
You don't have to sell all your possessions and move away. You have a particular place in life, and that's exactly where God wants you. What is your life situation right now? I can guarantee one thing, you are not cupbearer to the king. But who are you? A better question might be, who is in your immediate relational vicinity? Perhaps not a king, but you are a child of somebody. You might be a parent of somebody. You might be a roommate, a neighbor, an employer, an employee, a citizen. How can you begin to bring reconciliation and renewal to those in your immediate relational vicinity today? Those are the people for whom God is inviting us to have a broken heart, to trust in His promises, to ask for His favor, and to act. Sam Childers, in the uh, late 1980s, was a member of the biker gang, the Outlaws. And reluctantly, in the early 1990s, he went with his wife to a uh, revival at their church. And when he heard the gospel, he was struck to the heart, and he became a believer, even though he didn't even want to be there. Later that decade, in 1998, he took his first trip to Sudan to help build a well for some kids who needed fresh drinking water. And while he was there, he saw what the Lord's resistant army, resistance army was doing to children and families. They were destroying villages and handing AK-47s to kids and asking them to shoot their own parents. His heart was broken. And he began to fight for these children to protect them by building orphanages called children's, the Children's Village of South Sudan. And, according to his autobiography, Another Man's War, protecting them as only an outlaw could. Whatever that means. His heart was broken. He knew what was happening was not right. He trusted in the promises of God. He asked for God's favor and he acted. In 2011, his life was dramatized in the motion picture Machine Gun Preacher, where Gerard Butler played him. I would encourage you not to watch the movie. If you're interested, read the book. But I think that for us in Silicon Valley, being radically changed by God's faithfulness probably does not look like uprooting your life and doing something cinematic worthy or headline grabbing. A life radically changed by God's faithfulness, I think, is marked by repentance when you've messed up, even if the person that you've hurt doesn't know about it. It looks like forgiveness, even when the person who hurt you doesn't apologize. It looks like not defending yourself when you're accused correctly. It looks like listening to others instead of talking. God is bringing home to us, but we're not there yet. And when you experience that disconnect, recall God's promises, ask for his favor, and act. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you 
that you are the one who acted towards us first. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and instead of leaving us in that state, you came to us. You saved us. You brought us back to life. And we thank you for the promises that you've made to us. They are many, but we thank you most of all for the promise that for anyone who is in Jesus, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And one day you will remake all of creation into our home where we will live together with you the way we were meant to. We know that we could not do this on our own. We can't do anything on our own. So we ask for your strength, for your spirit to live and to love and to serve as you have served us. We pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.